Leviticus, again, 17. I remind you of the outline that we've been going through because now we're entering another part of the outline. We began looking at the first 10 chapters. That's officiation, dealing a lot with the priests and the priesthood and ending with the ordination of the priests. And then verses 11 through 16, purification, as we looked about at those purifying elements of the people of Israel and God's requirements for them, culminating in Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, that day of final purification every year where everyone was cleansed once and for all in the moment for the year, but then, of course, the next year began. Well, now we're in the next section, and I'm kind of lumping it together. Some stop at chapter 20, but chapter 17 through 26, I'm going to call consecration. Consecration. And that's where we are right now, and we enter a different section of the book, This is what some have called the holiness code. The holiness code. I'm just gonna call tonight holy recovery. Holy recovery for kind of a a theme because I see this running throughout. Much of this next section is about recovering, even, even repossessing that which had become unholy. Returning back to the intended holiness of God. God said, Leviticus eleven forty four, I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves. That word is kadash in the Hebrew. Make yourselves holy. Be holy, he says, for I am holy. So the recovery of holiness or holy recovery, either way you write it, I'll explain more. In fact, it's gonna take most of chapter 17 and 18 for me to get out what, what I'm, understanding here and what I mean by holy recovery, but it begins with blood. So you may think, well, we just finished Yom Kippur chapter 16. There was a lot of blood all over the place. And before that, all the blood offerings and sacrifices, there's a lot of blood. I told you it's a bloody book. Leviticus is the bloodiest book in the Bible. And while some might say, well, you lost me at Leviticus, I say he found us at the blood. And it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. We'll get there. But beginning in chapter 17, verse 1, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons and to all the sons of Israel and say to them, This is what the Lord has commanded, saying, Any man from the house of Israel who slaughters an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp, or who slaughters it outside the camp, and has not brought it to the doorway of the tent of meeting to present it as an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guiltiness is to be reckoned to that man. He shall shed, or he has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. Cut off, that phrase is used several times in the chapter. I'll explain what it means in a minute here. The reason is so that the sons of Israel may bring their sacrifices, which they were sacrificing in the open field, that they may bring them into the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting to the priest and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And with that, God immediately centralized sacrifice. Now, you may remember in the times of the patriarchs, sacrifices were not centralized. They were all over the place. You'd stop, build an altar, offer a sacrifice. Something important happened in a certain location, build an altar, offer a sacrifice. And there was no location to it. You didn't go to church. Think about that. Abraham never went to church. He went to the Lord. 
He worshiped. He offered sacrifice and honor and praise to God, but he never went to church. He didn't have a church to go to. Well, now with the tabernacle, which is a mobile church, you know, there's a central place. God says, this is where I want the offerings to take place. Not out in the field, not over there by the river, not even somewhere in the camp, out back of your tent, here at the tabernacle, centralizing sacrifice. This was significant. Not only was it a change from the past, but it was anticipating problems of the future because the people would get in the habit of sneaking off to make sacrifices to other gods. They would go to high places. They would go to groves where there were places of sacrifice, pagan sacrifices, and they'd sneak off over there and offer a little sacrifice just to shore up things. We've talked about the fact that the people of Israel, it, they didn't deny God. They, they weren't deniers of Yahweh later on and on into their walk, even back at the golden calf. It wasn't a denial of Yahweh. It was just Yahweh and another God, which supplants Yahweh as God, doesn't it? Anytime you say, I need God and, then you're saying God is not sufficient for what I need. I'll do church and. I'm gonna follow Jesus along with. And that's idolatry in its most simple form. God says, no more sacrificing out there. You bring it to the tabernacle. If you're gonna offer sacrifice, you bring it to the tabernacle. You bring it to the Lord. And so God centralized sacrifice even before the people would start violating that very centralization. Before the sin was even perpetrated, God provided a way out. Think about that. You know he has with you and me too. Before we sin, there is already provided a way out from that sin. We don't have to do it. We don't have to sin. I'm not saying we don't have a sin nature. I know we do. I know there's a human propensity to sin. I know all have fallen short of the glory of God. I understand that. But we don't have to, especially now that we're walking in Jesus. Especially now that his spirit indwells us. We don't have to do that. So God provides, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man, and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. And that's partially what he's doing right, right here, establishing tabernacle sacrifice so that when the lure and the draw of sacrifice, other places is there, they already know there's already a way to avoid that, to come before the Lord. So God makes this clear. Sacrifice is my business. You bring it to my dwelling place, which again is the tabernacle now, but ultimately it's gonna be the temple in Jerusalem. You bring it to the temple. You don't sacrifice elsewhere. That's because God alone has the right to command blood for atonement. He's the only one who has that right to say, I want, I desire, I require you to offer up blood. Why does he have that right? Well, on the other side of the schoolyard, we understand, we know. Galatians chapter three, verse 24, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. The word tutor is pedagogus in the Greek, where we get pedagogue, schoolmaster. 
The law is our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That's why the blood sacrifices. And if you missed it, let me spell it out for you. As we've been talking about, every blood sacrifice of Israel was simply pointing directionally to the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So that by faith in Jesus and his perfect offering once and for all, we could be with God. Not only in his dwelling place, but get this, him dwelling with us. As we've talked about, I think, really recently that we are movable tabernacles ourselves. We become the dwelling place of God. Well, verse six, after centralizing sacrifice, he says, the priest shall sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting and offer up the fat and smoke as a soothing aroma to the Lord. They shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demons with which they play the harlot. This shall be a permanent statute to them throughout their generations. And here all of a sudden we start to understand a little bit of what I was talking about when I said holy recovery. With chapter 17, God is going to begin to recover his people to holiness, to reclaim them to himself, to his holy purposes. Remember the live goat from chapter 16, Yom Kippur, driven out into the wilderness? Chapter 16, verse eight says, for Azazel. Azazel is that word. It's translated in many Bibles for the scapegoat. So we might just think, oh, well, the scapegoat, that just means a goat that's driven out. But it's an interesting word because it's, it's also been called the name of a demon. And I talked about that last week. Azazel, in the book of Enoch that both Jude and Peter reference, he is named. Azazel is a demon that's named who came down and caused all kinds of havoc on the earth. And so when, when the Lord says that you're gonna send out this live goat for Azazel, it's not an offering to Azazel, to this demon. Note that the goat is not sacrificed. But it's interesting, he says, I want you to send that out. And then right here in the next chapter, they shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demons with which they play the harlot. The Azazel in Yom Kippur is a direct denunciation of this practice of sacrificing to the goat demons. The satyrs would be the word. It's a denunciation. He's saying, no, no, we're not doing that anymore. You're not going out and sacrificing to the goat demons. You're going to send a live goat out instead. And you're going to sacrifice an actual goat to me. And that goat will give its blood and will be a sacrifice for atonement on the day of atonement. He establishes the one to deny the other, holy recovery. Where the people have begun to go out and sacrifice in these other places, God is recovering them to himself. Reclaim, repossessing. God is the ultimate repo man because he's repossessing people for himself, saying, no, you're no longer gonna go out and do that out there. You're gonna come and bring it back, bring it home, come on to me. The reclamation of holiness to the Lord. What God is doing is beautiful here. He is recentering his people's attention on the one true God, on himself. Why, because he's so self-centered? No, that would be me. That might be you. He is recentering their attention on himself because that's what's best for them. Note that when God calls us to himself, it's because it's what we need. And he knows that as our creator. 
Well, verse 8, continuing, you shall say to them, any man from the house of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the doorway of the tent of meeting to offer to the Lord, that man also shall be cut off from his people. So now God is saying, by the way, this isn't just the Jews among you, people of Israel. These are the non-Jews as well. Remember, there were a lot of non-Jews who came with them out of Egypt, three, four, well, prior to this, who had come out and, and were joined to them because they saw the work of God. They saw the power, the might of God, and they said, we want to be a part of that. So there were Gentiles in the camp aligned with Israel. There would be in the future aliens and foreigners who come into the people of Israel and join with them, though they are not Jewish. And God says, for all of you, this stands. I am your focus. You bring it to me. If you want to walk in this company, my rules apply. Verse 10, he says, and any man from the house of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. This was before the show Fear Factor came out. <laughs> I don't know if you guys remember that show. Fear Factor was out several years ago now, actually, but they, there was one of the fears they had to do was drink blood. It's absolutely gross. You're not to do that. Why is blood such a big deal to God? Because it's life, right. You guys are jumping ahead of me. But have you ever stopped? Because sometimes the simple questions, it's like we just skate right by. Why is blood so important to God? What's the deal with blood? What is it with blood, Lord? Because obviously it's throughout the scriptures from almost page one forward all the way to the very end. There's blood everywhere. Why the focus, the interest, the, the, the fixation even, if you will, on, on blood in the Bible? I don't know if you saw this in the news this last week, but Wisconsinites have a holiday tradition that has now made its way back on the scene. It's making a resurgence. They call it the cannibal sandwich. Did you see this? Any of you guys read about that? Oh, my goodness. Raw ground beef on rye bread with sliced onions, capers, salt and pepper, and sometimes Worcestershire sauce, Worcestershire shosh. Anyway, they put that on there, and then they'll sometimes top it off with a raw egg, to which I say, Merry Christmas and a happy E. coli. <laughs> what are they doing here? It's literally, it's raw meat. It's also called in Wisconsin tiger meat. It's called wildcat they're being warned, the people are being warned right now by the FDA about it, don't, don't eat that, don't do that, you're just begging for illness if you do so. And, and Wisconsinites are saying, no, no, it's, it's good, you gotta try it, you gotta try it. In classy restaurants, they put a different name on it, steak tartare, right, steak tartare. You know where that comes from? The Tartars, or Mongols. Actually, the Mongols conquered the Tartars and, and they kind of became one people group. And it's said, and you can look this up, historically, they would take raw meat and put it under their saddles to tenderize it. And then they added the spices and flavoring to get rid of the horse taste. You know, it would be there because of the saddle, saddle meat. And so this is, I guess, a big deal. Listen, as far back as the flood, when it came to not just raw meat, but blood itself, which has been called liquid meat, you are not to eat it. You are not 
to drink it. The Lord said, Genesis 9, verse 3, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. If there's blood in it, you don't eat it, God said. He says this, surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast I will require it and from every man and from every man's brother I will require the life of man. Now hold that thought for a second and just understand God was speaking to Noah. This is what the Jewish people call the Noahic covenant. You know who it applies to? Everybody, all humanity. Do you know when it ceased to be in effect? Never. The Noahic covenant is in effect today as far as scripture is concerned. This is something God said for all people of all time. Don't eat blood. Don't drink blood. Don't eat flesh that's bloody. Don't go there. And then again, listen to verse five carefully. He says, surely I will require your life blood. So what? So if I happen to have a rare steak, I am risking God draining me of my blood? I mean, is he just a bloodthirsty God? It could come off like that if you don't know his heart. He's, I will require your life blood. From every beast I will require it. And from man and from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. I will require your blood from you. It kind of sounds like a punishment, but you know what? I don't think it is. I'll require your life blood. The word require, edros, in Hebrew is I will seek after or care about. I care about your lifeblood. I, I, I will seek after your lifeblood. Listen carefully. The Lord is not a bloodthirsty God. However, he does require the blood of all living things. What do you mean? I mean that ultimately all living things are accountable to God. He will require you to give an account. He will require you to come before you, before him, and your lifeblood is simply emblematic of that which you are, emblematic of your very life. Your life belongs to God. That's what he's saying here. Don't drink blood because blood is life, and life is you, and you belong to me. You're mine. I will require it of you. He's not saying if you eat a cannibal sandwich, I'm coming for you but he is coming. And the point is this, I'll let the Hebrew pastor say it. Hebrews chapter four, verse 13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God says in Genesis nine, I'm establishing this rule, this Noahic covenant, and you're gonna be answerable to me for it. I require it of you. You will have to stand before me. And not, not only answerable of the covenant, but we are answerable to God with whom we have to do. And verse 11 in Leviticus 17 is the consummate explanation of all of this where the Lord says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. I remember years ago, Rich Mullins giving a little devotional thought at a concert Christian artist back in the 80s and 90s, tragic uh, loss when he died. But I remember him sharing and saying, how amazing is it that God created the snowflake? That beautiful, I mean, you look at it and everyone is different and they're just 
remarkable in creation. God created every single one of those. And he goes, and how marvelous that God created the tongue. And how amazing that God created the tongue to taste the snowflake. And the point he was making was the intentionality of God. Think about this. God didn't have to create us with blood. He did so intentionally. Because throughout his word, blood would be the example of life. Because throughout his word, he would be referring back to the blood. And as we watch and walk through all the blood sacrifices and ultimately end up at the cross itself and understand finally what all this blood was directing us to, we are amazed that God created blood knowing that he would drain it from his own human body. That's remarkable. Now, verse 11 is not only profound theology, which I'll come back to in a second, but it's also just profound physiology. Do you realize in Leviticus 17, 11, before anyone was thinking this way, God describes the vitality of blood, the necessity of it. Now, several centuries would go by, and old Solomon, as the preacher of Ecclesiastes, he would give an allegorical picture of this very same thing. Ecclesiastes 12, verse six, he says, remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed and the pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed and then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Solomon was describing allegorically, metaphorically, if you will, the circulatory system in poetic fashion. And when that's broken, and when the blood drains, you return to the dust. It would take another two and a half thousand years from Solomon until 1628 when a physician and anatomist named William Harvey demonstrated the vitality of blood and the circulatory system. That was the first time when man could stand back and go, oh, <laughs> that's how we work. And God was talking about it right here, describing it, right here, and I've often said, you know, science eventually caught up. For those who say follow the science, I say follow the word and science will get there. By the way, science isn't a bad thing. Science is simply the word that describes searching after, seeking to understand, and it it began with Christians who wanted to understand God's created order. That's where science started. It's not a replacement although in this culture it's become somewhat of a replacement for religion or for faith. Well, I'm a scientist, I don't believe. Well, then you're not really a scientist because you really haven't searched out the truth. But God is speaking here physiologically in remarkable, simple clarity in this single sentence. Listen to it again. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. That's incontrovertible. And I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. And so while it is physiologically sound, it is theologically profound. Hebrews chapter nine, verse 22 says, according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And the Lord would drive this point home down through the centuries with every sacrifice offered at the tabernacle and then at the temple. That the blood is the deal. If you don't shed blood, there is not forgiveness until it was so ingrained in the psyche that suddenly we see Jesus on the cross. And then we say, oh, 
That's the point. But remember what God said back in Genesis 9, I will require it of you. Listen, the one thing required of your lifeblood is how you will spend it. The one thing God requires of all of our lifeblood, that is our, the essence of our lives themselves, is what we'll do with them. He's given us the blood that is the life. He's given us life. And now he says, what are you gonna do? And to my way of thinking, and I've come to this over the years, that a life is spent, there is one issue. There is one decision. There is one choice, and it is the whole entire reason we're here. And whether you make it as a 10-year-old kid or a 90-year-old man, 75-year-old woman or a 35-year-old lady, it, it makes no difference. You make the decision somewhere in that lifespan, our life's blood, how will we spend it? Listen, I'm not talking about pouring out blood, sweat, and tears. Man, I really spent my blood on that. I'm not talking about hard work and hard labor. I'm talking about faith. All the work and the labor and the blood, sweat, and tears, that's about proving my value, my worth. It doesn't work. The question is, have you, will you remember him who spilled his blood for you? Will you remember him? Solomon said again, remember him. Remember him. Before your blood is spent, before you return to the dust, remember him. And we do that. We remember him. In fact, we just did when we took communion together. And it's the reason I share this over and over, why we do it every Wednesday, every Sunday, to remember him. That's what it's about. It is not ritual. It's remembrance. Paul said, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. We've chosen at the bridge to drink every Wednesday and every Sunday, and you can do it in your homes, and you can meet in a small group and do the same thing. But as often as you do it, you do it to remember him, and that's holiness. By the blood of Christ, to walk with him, to be drawn to him, back to his presence, his dwelling place, this is the guiding purpose of all the blood in this book. Continuing in verse 12, therefore I said to the sons of Israel, no person among you may eat blood, nor may any alien who sojourns among you eat blood. So when any man from the sons of Israel or for the aliens who sojourn among them in hunting catches a beast or a bird which may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. And now he shifts gears a little bit because it's not just about sacrifices that are offered, don't go out there and sacrifice out there anymore. You bring the sacrifice right here. Well, what about hunting? What if we're out killing wild game? What about that, Lord? Well, he's not exactly gonna require you to chase a gazelle into the tabernacle, right? So if you're out there and you're hunting and you take down an animal, then you don't drink its blood. In fact, you go further than that. You pour out its blood and cover it with earth. Out in the field, you drain it right then and there. Because the blood, the blood 
by reason of the life makes atonement. And God is clarifying, separating it. Remember, separation, that's holiness. Same blood, this is a holy issue to the Lord. Verse 14, for as the life of all flesh, its blood is identified with its life. Therefore, I said to the sons of Israel, you're not to eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of the flesh is in its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. When any person eats an animal which dies or is torn by beasts, whether he is native or an alien, he shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and remain unclean until evening, and then he will become clean. So that, verse 15, is dealing with roadkill. <laughs> or an animal that you find that's, that's just been recently killed, that rather than let the meat go to waste, you can eat that, but you drain the blood, and then you're unclean until evening. Verse 16, but if he does not wash them or bathe his body, then he shall bear his guilt. This is not something to do. What God is saying throughout chapter 17 is respect the blood. The blood is the life. And he's reclaiming, he's recovering, if you will, blood for holy purposes, for his holiness. Listen, if under the old covenant, even animal blood like this was to be so respected, what about the precious blood of Jesus? What about the blood of Christ, which gave us the new covenant? Hebrews 10, 29, the pastor said, how much severer punishment do you think he will reserve or deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Here we're told, hey, if you kill, a, if you kill an animal, a beast or a bird, Verse 13, you pour out its blood and cover it with earth. But then the Hebrew pastor says, if you trample underfoot the Son of God, man, if you respect the blood covered over with earth out there in the hunting field, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he, Jesus, was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? And God was so serious about reclaiming blood as a holy symbol that if it was disrespected, if these rules, if these laws in chapter 17 were violated, the people were cut off. Verse four, verse nine, verse 14. Three times he says, cut off. Three times he says, you're cut off if you do this. Three times, cut off. The word is yakaret, and it means excommunication, so you can be cut off from the people of Israel, cut out of the community if you're caught doing these things, if you violate these rules. Or it can also, depending on context, mean execution. Excommunication or execution, depending on what is being talked about. Three times he says, cut off, cut off, cut off. Jesus was cut off, wasn't he? For three days. Jesus was cut off. In Daniel's previously veiled prophecy, the angel Gabriel said, Daniel chapter nine, verse 26, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. If you don't know or understand Daniel 9, 24 through 26, that section of Daniel and that prophecy, go back and listen to it online because it is vital to our faith. And what's amazing is that the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, unlocks the prophecy of Daniel such that we understand it now. We know what it means. It's, it's unveiled and absolutely clear. But he says Messiah would be 
cut off. And even before the revelation of Jesus, even before we saw this happen, even before we saw the fulfillment of Daniel chapter nine and the prophecy there, in the years between Daniel and Jesus, that 500 or so year period of time, even the old rabbis believed that this meant Messiah was to be executed. And it didn't make sense to them because they would read the old prophets. He comes as a conquering hero and a suffering servant. How could he possibly do both? He comes to rule and reign and to die. How can that be possible? And so the death part, the cutoff part, the execution, well, that didn't sound as good. So that got glossed over, which is why Judaism today is still awaiting the first coming of Jesus or the first coming of Mashiach, their Messiah. Because Jesus came the first time fulfilling the suffering servant. He comes again fulfilling the conquering king. So it's all gonna be fulfilled precisely. But I'm pointing this out to say Messiah's blood had to be spilt. The prophets declared it, and it happened exactly as prophesied at Golgotha, Matthew 27, 25, or back in 24, when Pilate saw he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was breaking out. He took water, he washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourself. Do you remember what the people said? It's remarkable. With tragic, ignorant irony, they said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. And truly, truly that's where our hope lies. My hope of eternal life is because his blood is on me, on my children. His I gotta get under the blood. I gotta get covered by the blood. What's interesting to me in chapter 17 and all this talk about the blood the phrase blood, the word blood, dom in the Hebrew, just D-A-M, dom, it's used exactly 12 times. And so like the 12 tribes of Israel, it's as if the Lord is speaking to the 12 tribes and he's saying in this covenant, your blood belongs to me. I've given it to you. The blood on the altar is what covers you that you might belong to me. I require it of you. I give you this blood covering so that your blood can belong to me, so that you can belong to me. And I was thinking about this today. Do we, do we follow him with that kind of radical engagement? Do we think in terms of that kind of obedience that my very blood coursing through my veins tonight belongs to Jesus? My blood belongs to God. And he will require it of me. And again, I don't see that as punishment. I see that as we have to come before God. And I will either come before him with my blood, see, see Lord, see what I did by my own blood, sweat, and tears? Or I will come to him by the blood of Jesus. Remember that Jesus gave his own blood. He said, John 6, 54, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. God just reclaimed blood for holiness, holy recovery. Now, some would read this and they might begin to protest a little bit, especially if you pay attention to what's really happening in chapter 17 through 20. 
They might say, Lord, religious rules for church are fine. That, that's good. I, I accept that. I understand that. You gotta have some standards. You gotta have some moral code for the gathering of the assembly. So that's fine. I'm okay with that. But why you gotta get all up in my face and regulate my weekend hunting practices? Why do you gotta come into my home and tell me what to do there, what I eat, what I drink? What about my privacy? Well, in America, we gave up privacy when Facebook started. We gave up privacy here a long time ago. Ain't no such thing anymore. But listen, the holy recovery, especially of Leviticus 17 through 20, this is all about holiness in private life. And that's the key to understanding what I mean by holy recovery. It's holiness in private life. Chapters one through 16, go back and look at it. It's all corporate. It's the community. All Israel together, these are the rules and the responsibilities and the offerings and the sacrifices and the priestly guidelines for the community, for the people of Israel. You land in chapter 17, suddenly he's talking about very personal things. You're out hunting, that belongs to me. What you do, you don't sacrifice, you, you come to me. We'll see this even more as we get into, in just a second, the next chapter. But it is all absolutely about the personal behavior of the individual Israelite. God is making holy recovery of the person and not just the community. It's beautiful because as much as the Lord loves his family and loves his church and loves the community of the saints of all believers, he loves you personally. He wants you to be holy. And not just when you show up here. Holy at home, holy in the marketplace, holy driving down the street in your car, holy recovery. God wants to recover all that we are to be holy for him personally. Keep that firmly in mind because we're gonna move from the dining room in chapter 17 into the bedroom in chapter 18. Verse one. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live according with them. I am the Lord. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. And he says again, I am the Lord. And what's interesting here is this chapter is structured, chapter 18, like a preamble of an ancient covenant. These opening five verses are like the opening preamble of a covenant that one makes with another. And truly, that's exactly what God's doing here. He is establishing a very intimate covenant as God is he's bringing his people into a distinct place. But not just the people of Israel, he's bringing the individual Israelite into covenant with him. And he's saying, you, you personally, you singularly, don't do what they, they did back in Egypt. Don't do what you're gonna see them do in the land of Canaan. You, I'm talking to you independent, individual, personal Jewish man, Jewish woman. This is between me and you now. My friends, it's so important to get this because it's not just that God's making a holy covenant with individuals. This is the attitude of a holy recovered life. 
A life in holy recovery, recovered by the Lord to the Lord. This is our attitude. Let me explain. John chapter three, verse five. Jesus said, very familiar to us, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. I know you've heard that before. It's a very common verse among Christians. It should be. Hey, all are born of water, created by God. But when we're born again of the Spirit, guess what? We're recovered. We're reclaimed. We're redeemed. We're even repossessed. It's God going back to the garden. We left the garden. Adam and Eve did, but representative of all of us. And sin in our lives, all like sheep have gone astray. Isaiah 53 tells us. So we were created by him, truly for him. We're happiest with him, but we blew it. And we wandered from him. And now to be born again is to be reclaimed for holiness. To be born anew is to be recovered by God, set apart holy to him. We are called to walk differently. And notice this, the wording in verse three, he says, you shall not walk in their statutes. Whether the way the Egyptians did before, where you spent all that time, four generations, nor in Canaan where you're going, don't walk the way they walk. The word walk in the Hebrew is yalak, and it translates follow or to go in the way of. To follow or go in the way, don't, don't go that way. Psalm 1, verse 1, blessed, well, I'm gonna read it to you. I wasn't going to, I thought, nah, I don't need to check that. We'll just listen to this. The very first Psalm, verse one, says very clearly, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night, and he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. And we're talking spiritual prospering in the Lord and by the Lord, we become what we're supposed to be when we walk his way, not the way of Egypt, not the way of Canaan. Isaiah chapter two, verse five says, come house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Micah chapter four, verse two, many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths, and that's a prophecy, by the way, of the coming kingdom, a time when the nations of the world will actually desire to go up to Jerusalem to walk in the way of the Lord. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him. See, the walk, man, that's every moment of every day of our lives, he doesn't say, so as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so worship him every Sunday and Wednesday. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so think about him from time to time. He said, walk in him. Galatians chapter five, he said, let us walk by his spirit. Any mobility, when I walk from my bedroom to the kitchen, walk in him. When I walk from my office upstairs down to ask Eva a question, walk in him. When I go on a walk with my wife, 
walk with him. Walk in him. Don't walk like the world walks. Well, the Lord now explicitly imposes his moral code as if it was any of his business on our sexual behavior. Verse six, none of you shall approach any blood relative of his to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father. That is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You are not to uncover her nakedness. Now, let me just point this out real quick because I want to read through this and come back to it. But verse seven is very interesting because he says that the nakedness of your father is the nakedness of your mother. What's he saying? One flesh union. That what you do to the one, you do to the other. That if you offend the father, you offend the mother. If you offend the mother, you offend the father. They are one flesh. This is the way God sees it. His nakedness is her nakedness, and her nakedness is his nakedness. So when Ham went in and uncovered his father's nakedness, back in Genesis 9, 10, that region, 9, I think it's chapter 9, yeah. When Ham went in there and, and, and profaned his father and came out laughing and told his brothers about it, It was the same as if Ham had uncovered his mother's nakedness because it's the same thing. And by the way, the uncovering of nakedness implies a depraved sexual immorality. What Ham did was he didn't just walk in and see Noah naked and drunk. The implication, even back in Genesis 9, is something happened. But read on. You shall not uncover, verse 8, the nakedness of your father's wife. It is, again, your father's nakedness. The nakedness of your sister either, your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether born at home or born outside. Their nakedness you shall not uncover. The nakedness of your son's daughter and your daughter's daughter, their nakedness you shall not uncover for their their nakedness is yours. Relating to them. You're doing unto them, you're doing unto yourself. He says, verse 11, the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter. Born to your father, she is your sister. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is your father's blood relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister. She's your mother's blood relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. You shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. To which I reply, ooh. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She's your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter. You shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are blood relatives. It is lewdness. Are you getting it? He's covering all the bases. You can't miss anything here. He continues and says, you shall not marry a woman in addition to her sister as a rival while she is alive to uncover her nakedness. Now, the word nakedness is pretty clear here. Lest anyone should wonder what God's talking about, nakedness is nakedness in the Hebrew. But what's he describing here? That he says over and over, we are not to do. Israel, you are not to do this. The word uncover, which is used 17 times in this chapter alone, is galot, and it means to lay bare or expose. But the implication is exposure to immorality. It's not just that you strip someone. It's not just that you see someone naked. It is to uncover the nakedness is to expose them to sexual immorality. 
Furthermore, he says it is lewdness at the end of that listing in verse 17. It's lewdness. That's zima. And zima in Hebrew simply means wicked without shame. Understand that. To be lewd is to be wicked without shame. Flaunting, blatant, flouting immorality. All of this is euphemistic for incestuous immorality. God is being specific with the people living in the world at a time that was that depraved. Just like we are. We are living in a world that is that depraved. For the first time in my years of ministry, when I read chapter 18, I think, wow, this does apply. This needs to be heard. In the way people are acting and the things that are going on and what, what we read about in the news. And by the way, there's stuff in the news that doesn't need even to be in the news. It's just all about the hype and circulation. Don't uncover their nakedness. It's, again, talking about incest of any direction, any type, and God just covers the gamut in the family. But I want to take this spiritually for a minute because, brothers and sisters, especially in this season, I guess I don't have to say it again, but I will. It's been a hard season for the church. It's been a hard season for the world, no question. But this has been tough on Christians who for the first time are having to answer the question, does Jesus really draw us together? What if we're not like-minded? What if we're politically polarized? What if it's not even political? What if we're polarized in our views as to what's going on in the country? And this kind of polarization has been divisive and hurtful in the church. It surprised me. I, I was not prepared for this. Didn't see it coming. Let me just put it this way. What I take away from Leviticus 18 for us spiritually is you don't expose the nakedness of your family. You don't expose the nakedness of your family, brothers and sisters. We don't expose each other's nakedness. What do you mean, Rick? Psalm 32, verse one says, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How many times do we read, don't uncover their nakedness, but to cover? Proverbs 17, verse nine, he who conceals a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends, dealing with gossip and someone sins, someone falls short of the glory of God, and a brother or sister says, did you hear about their sin? And they just uncovered the nakedness of their brother. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers transgressions. And we, brothers and sisters, family of God, we are to be those who cover. We do not uncover each other's nakedness, whether by gossip or slander, sharing with one brother over here what that brother over there did, and I uncover and expose their shame and their embarrassment and their sin. Remember, we've just come off the teaching of Yom Kippur, 
which is all about covering. The day in which God atoned for, Kippur, covered his people. Remember I said last week, Kippur, the same word is used of the pitch that covered the ark. And that's the picture of the blood covering. God says, I got you covered. Yom Kippur and all these sacrifices were about covering the people with temporary forgiveness, if you will, until the perfect sacrifice of Jesus would come. And then washed clean. But until then, I got you covered. I will not consider your sin. And as brothers and sisters, in this family, we are called not to uncover each other's sin and nakedness. Now, don't misunderstand me because this is not a covering that hides. We're not saying that love hides sin. It's not a rug under which to sweep sin. It's a covering that protects and defends and safeguards a brother or a sister. A covering that says, I love less enough that even when I know that he has sinned, the only person I will go to about that is less. I will not go to any of you to uncover the nakedness of my brother. See, that's love. That's what God did. That's what he did with the people of Israel as a, as a showing of his immense love for us. And Peter turns around and he says in 1 Peter 4, verse 7, the end of all things is near. Now, if Peter said that, how much more to the end of all things are we? The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and be sober for the purpose of prayer. And above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Translation, keep fervent in your agape. Let your unconditional love be passionate and fervent. Why, Peter? Because love covers a multitude of sins. And the more you love each other, the more you will seek to cover each other rather than expose. James, actually, Yaakov, writing what we call the book of James, chapter five, verse 19. I don't think I'm ever gonna be able to quote from James again and call him James because his name wasn't James. But anyway, James 5, 19, he writes, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sin." That even the one turning the sinner back isn't turning him back to say, hey, look, I caught one. Look at the shame on this guy. Check out his nakedness. Sinner. In the household of God, we are not to uncover the naked sin and shame of other people. Now, listen, you can uncover your own sin. It's called confession. Yes, man, we are taught that, that we have by the grace of God, the freedom to confess without judgment. Yes, I did this, and, and I, Lord, I'm, I'm sorry for this. I can walk in the light confessing to brothers and sisters. I can be forgiven. But as for the sin and fallenness of other people, grace, love will always cover. It will not expose. Ultimately, to see the sinner covered and cleansed in the precious blood of the lamb. That, that's our purpose. That's our goal. Come to Jesus, not to expose a life that, that's messed up, but to be washed and cleansed of it. Now, literally, again, back in chapter 18, the Lord, in these 
several verses is prohibiting Israelite incest. He has to because these behaviors were common in pagan culture. Common in Egyptian culture? Definitely common ahead in Canaanite culture to which they were headed. And so now the Lord does something else. Watch this. He warns against carnal knowledge in Canaan. So first it was Israelite incest, prohibited. Now it's carnal knowledge in Canaan. Look at verse 20. Or start with verse 19. Also you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness during her menstrual impurity. And by the way, that was a pagan cultic practice. This wasn't just about the husband and wife. Although he's telling his husband, look, give your wife the week off. (laughs) Give her a break, man. But it was a pagan practice in pagan temples that a woman in her impurity, a woman in that week of bleeding, that would become, I I don't even wanna describe some of the things that history has taught us that the pagans were engaged in. God says, don't do it. That is not holy. That is an impure use of blood, and I have already reclaimed, chapter 17, I've reclaimed blood for holiness. But verse 20, then he says, and watch this, you shall not have intercourse with your neighbor's wife to be defiled with her. In a word, adultery. Verse 21, you shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Moloch, nor shall you profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. In two words, child sacrifice. Verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. In a word, homosexuality. Verse 23, you also shall not have intercourse with any animal to be defiled with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion, in a word, bestiality. And by the way, even in Egypt, There was an Egyptian goat cult that believed that women could mate with goats and produce gods. And so bestiality was a thing there and it was acceptable. It it was, I mean, there were legal parameters that the Egyptians had for it. Times when bestiality was not okay and times when bestiality was okay. (laughs) I mean, talk about pagan. And, And again, heading into Canaan, it would be worse than it was in Egypt, the carnal knowledge before them. Now, you might read this and, and stopping at verse 21, you shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. What do the two have to do with each other? What's the one have to do with the other? How does offering offspring to Molech, and by the way, that was absolutely inhumane child sacrifice. I've described it to you before. That was placing an infant on the heated up, red hot, molten arms of this god Moloch, where the child would sizzle and then fall into the belly, which was a furnace, and be sacrificed. And we read of that, we hear about that, and think that is, I can't even imagine that in the modern world. But it happens every day in America. Every day by the thousands, child sacrifice. Now you might ask, and I'll say more about that in just a second, how does that profane the name of God? How does that profane the name of Yahweh? Because these people were his people. 
intimately connected to him. They were to represent him as a holy people. They were to be a light in the darkness by declaring God and his reputation to the world. And when an Israelite would go offer an infant to Molech, it was absolutely spurning the name of God that they represented. And that's a challenge, a convicting challenge for us as followers of Jesus. How does our life, how does my behavior reflect on the reputation of the name Jesus? What does the world think of Jesus by looking at me as a follower? That's how the name would be profaned and you would have Israelites in years to come who would go out and they would sacrifice firstborn children to Molech. Do you remember what God said about the firstborn? He's mine. The firstborn of your household belongs to me. Not by sacrifice. No, you come to the temple and you pay the price of redemption. And you redeem that child with the silver that's paid at the temple. And through that act of redemption, then you take that child home. But symbolically, now you understand, I've given you your firstborn and he's mine. So sickening, so absolutely tragic what they did in the sacrifice of the infants. And they had, listen to this, they had logical reasoning for it. And I'll tell you what that is in just a second. But this was about reputation. God's saying, you don't do this because it will profane even my name. Jesus said in John 14, 31, so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commands me. And that's the example. So the world will know, I will do what he tells me. To a T, John 17, 22, Jesus said, the glory which you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity. Why, Lord? So that the world will know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. The life, it's not just about the radical obedience of giving my blood, of my life required by him. It's, it's that the radical obedience that I give to him speaks to the world about who he is. Man, that'll spin you around when you start to, when you honk at someone and give them the international hand symbol and as you drive off, it says Jesus loves you on your bumper. You know, it's not a good thing. How does it reflect? How do, does, does how we act and what we do... How is how the church is acting right now in this season of COVID reflecting on Jesus? That's the biggest question for me. Are we acting like people who love the way Jesus did? Or are we too divided among ourselves? And I'm preaching to the choir, and by the way, you're singing beautifully tonight. I'm obviously speaking to those who are here and who are choosing the Lord. That's not, not trying to make anybody feel bad, but it's, it's our example to the world and we forget that. Do we live, let me put it this way, do we live as holy, recovered representatives? That the world looks at me and says, oh, there goes one of those Jesus people. Boy, I can see Jesus in his life. I recognize Jesus in her life. Wow, she loves so profoundly. She must be a Christian. Is that what we hear here in the world? 
Paul said, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.20, as though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Verses 20, 21, 22, and 23 are interesting. I want you to think about, just for a second longer here, note the issue that God calls out and the word that accompanies or describes God's view of that issue. Adultery. Verse 20, you shall not have intercourse with your neighbor's wife. That's adultery. And the word he uses, to be defiled. Adultery is defiling. Then he says, child sacrifice. In the name of Molech. What does that do? Profanes the name of God. Then he describes, he doesn't even say the word, the Hebrew word for homosexuality, he just describes it, so there's no way you can miss what he's saying. Homosexuality is, in God's word, an abomination. Now, lest anybody hears this on YouTube or goes out and says, Rick said homosexuality was abomination, listen very carefully, the Bible says that. And of course, there are those today saying, well, the Bible's hate speech. We'll talk about that in just a second. Homosexuality, the Bible says, is an abomination. The word abomination means disgusting or abhorrent to God. That just is what it is. We can talk about how to treat the homosexual person, how how the church responds to the LGBTQ plus community. We can talk about that. But understand the baseline is God's view. Not mine, not yours. It's God's view. And God's view is that homosexuality is an abomination. By the way, in the same paragraph, adultery is defiling. He also says, bestiality is, the word is a perversion in verse 23. All of these four things, adultery, child sacrifice, homosexuality, and bestiality, all four things on this list are all things that happen behind closed doors in private, in secrecy. They are also all on the same list, which means everything on this list is problematic. Lest we point to one thing above another, this is all on the same list. And my friends, this list is progressive. What do you mean? In a culture. This is what happens as a culture begins to fall apart. It begins with adultery. The next thing we see is child sacrifice and then homosexuality and ultimately bestiality and don't think it's not already happening in America, it is. This is progressive. Now someone might say, well we don't have child sacrifice in America and I think you know we do. Listen. Back when sacrificing a firstborn to Moloch was the thing in pagan culture, the reasoning behind it, what was taught and believed and understood among pagans was that when an infant was sacrificed like this on the molten arms of Moloch, the spirit of that child was transported into the next born child to live and live blessed. So we sacrifice now so that The child that I'm sacrificing, it was the thinking, can now be raised up because I've sacrificed to Moloch, this loving God, 
Now there's a blessing on the life of this child. This was in the culture. The attitude was, we'll sacrifice this now so that we can have better later. Is that not a reasoning for abortion? We'll sacrifice this now because now's not the time. Now's a problem. Now we're not ready. Oh, now it's, I, I can't deal with this. It'll be better later. Sacrifice the child for later. And we look at the pagan sacrifice to Moloch and we think, well, that was so depraved. The mentality was the same and the people truly believed. The spirit is just gonna transfer and then that child will be born and blessed. People will come up with all kinds of excuses and reasoning to justify what in essence is infanticide. That's what it is. Even a woman's right to choose. Wow, it sounds so politically, you know, selling. It's a woman's right. Yeah, of course. Listen, note again the progression. The embrace of all these things are the final signs of the end of a culture. Adultery, abortion, homosexuality, bestiality. And we have watched our country go right down the list. And you can look at, I mean, history doesn't lie. From Canaan to Babylon to Greece to Rome, all the way down the line, we've seen these major nations crumble, either destroyed from without or imploding from within, and always the pattern is the same. You can track this list, this progression begins in the culture and starts to eat away at the fabric of morality in a culture. And when sexual immorality, as described in all of these things, runs rampant and common and approved in a culture, that culture's on the way out, my friends. Unless, unless there should be a revival. Unless the culture repents and turns to Jesus and there is still that potential for America revival. Now, I prefer rapture, but I'll take revival. I'll go either way. And I pray for both. I pray, Jesus, come quickly. But I also pray, if you're gonna delay, if we have another 10 years in this country, bring revival. Restore morality. Reveal to this culture the sin of our sexual immorality. And I'm not, see, that's the thing. You, you read Leviticus 18 and the world gets up in arms. That's hate speech. You can't talk about that. Adultery's on the list. We've been talking about that for years in the scriptures. Everybody knows that that's not a biblical behavior. No different. Adultery, homosexuality, they're both sexual immorality before the Lord. But suddenly, the one has, well, it's become a right in our culture, hasn't it? You have the right to become this. People say, I've, I've been, I was born homosexual. Guess what? I was born a sinner. That doesn't excuse it. It, it, it doesn't say that, well, then be that way. How'd you like it if people were going around saying, well, I was born a murderer. Just, just the way I am. And again, this is, God has made it so, he, he gives us the baseline. Adultery, defiling, child sacrifice, profanes my name, homosexuality, abomination, bestiality is perversion. It's all sexual immorality. It is all problematic, and it's all what Paul was talking about in Romans 1, verse 22. Let me just read this to you. 
really the companion passage of what the world would call hate speech. It's not. But listen, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and of crawling creatures. And you might say, okay, so he's talking about idolatry. He's talking about replacing God with anything. What have we done in our culture? We have replaced God, we have replaced divinity with humanity. By the way, humanity is starting to fall to the animal kingdom. Animals are now being equated with human beings. So the list is, rings true in our culture. Corruptible man, birds, four-footed animals, crawling creatures, that's America. That's the world in which we live. Therefore, God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. My friends, we have been lied to. I would say this to people in the world. This is not about my condemnation or my judgment. This is about a deception that has been so propagated in our culture that people say it's a right. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worshiped and served the creator ra- creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions or degradation, a downgrade, if you will. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own purses the due penalty of their error. Brothers and sisters, let me just say this. Our hearts should break for the homosexual person. Just as our hearts should break for the person in the adulterous relationship. Because both are out of step with God. Both are in rebellion to the Lord. Both are harming themselves and others by this lie, by this deception. Men abandon the natural function for the women, burning the desire to one another. Verse 28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, again, get God out of the marketplace, remove the Ten Commandments, take any vestige of God out of the public square, It's what we see happening in this country. They did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. God gave them over then to a depraved mind. It went from dishonor to degradation to depravity, which is the pattern. To do those things which are not proper. And being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but note this, also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Stamp of approval. And that's in our culture as well. Are we allowed to even read such things? Romans chapter one, Leviticus 18. Isn't that hate speech? Far from it, far from it. It's love. Why would I sit up here and read this tonight? It's love. 
It is for the sake of love. And you might say, yeah, but Rick, you said love covers. Yes, love does cover. I'm not up here telling you who is committing these sins. Just reading the scripture and detailing that these sins very much are embedded in our culture. Love covers, but love does not ignore, does not celebrate or embrace sin. What love does is it seeks to cover with the blood, the blood of Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, listen to this. Do you not know, and it is for love's sake I read this, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't you know that? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, so any kind of sex outside of a man and a woman in marriage. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous. And again, I point out to you, the homosexual who is offended by that needs to read the whole list because he's not, the only, he's not alone in this sexual immorality. Okay, it's across the board. And for the person committing sexual immorality who says, well, at least I'm not homosexual, hey, what's the difference? It's still sexual immorality. Nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the point. If you're engaged in any of this, you can't come into the kingdom. Why? Impure, defiled, perverse. You can't be in the presence of God. Well, that's just so judgmental. God is saying, don't be deceived. You can't get in if this is the lifestyle, if this is the behavior. But this is the verse. I love this verse in the scriptures, verse 11, 1 Corinthians chapter six. Such were some of you, he says to the church at Corinth, to his brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Such were some of you. Go back and read the list. This was quite a church. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Brothers and sisters, what can wash away my sin? Sing it like you mean it. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And to talk about, the, this just, it kills me that we've gotten so far down this road of depravity that this is called hate speech when God is declaring it beforehand. Don't go this way. Don't do this. Why, Lord? Because I want you. Because I love you. Because you matter to me. I care for you. Okay, quickly. Verse 24. By the way, you know what, what the, uh, I, I think the greatest thing that a Jew can say to another Jew at Hanukkah, you know, we have joy to the world, oi to the world. Okay, sorry. Verse 24, do not defile yourselves by any of these things. I have a t-shirt at home, by the way, that has a menorah on it, it says oi to the world, I love it, I love it. Do not defile yourselves by any of these things for by all these, the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. For the land has become defiled. This is something we don't get. The very land itself is defiled by the behavior of the people who live on it. And he says, therefore, I have brought its punishment upon it. So the land has spewed out 
its inhabitants. Why will God send Israel in to clean out Canaan? Because the Canaanites have defiled the land that God gave them. And by the way, I remind you, he gave them 400 years to repent and to turn back to him, and they wouldn't do it. The land has been defiled. Verse 26, but as for you, you are to keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not do to any of these abominations, any of them. Don't pick from the list. Don't say, well, this I'll do, but that I won't. No, don't do any of them. Neither the native nor the alien who sojourns among you. For the men of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations. Side note, nothing new under the sun. And the land has become defiled so that the land will not spew you out should you defile it, as it has spewed out the nation which has been before you. For whoever does any of these abominations, those persons who do so shall be cut off from among their people. Thus you are to keep my charge that you do not practice any of the abominable customs which have been practiced before you so as not to defile yourselves with them. And he underscores the whole thing. I am Yahweh Elohim. I am the Lord, your God. That's why. That's the purpose of all this. By the way, cut off here. In this case, in this context, and we know this from future studies, cut off is execution. This kind of sexual immorality merited in Israel execution. You might say, well, why so severe a punishment? In a society like ours that now defines love as lust and anything goes, such an extreme punishment of execution for sexual immorality may seem extreme, but again, the last thing God says makes it very clear, I am the Lord your God. Once again, God is the point. He's the standard. He's the whole thing. Seven times in this chapter, it's repeated that the Israelites were not to act like the Canaanite nations. Seven times. Uh, in, in, in verse three, it's mentioned twice, and then in verse 24, 26, 27, 29, and 30, he says, repeatedly, you are not to act like the Canaanite nations. Seven times. It's a complete prohibition. <laughs> Making sure you understand completely do not behave the way they behave. Six times in this chapter, the phrase, I am the Lord your God, is given. And I think that's fascinating. I don't know if this will make the same impact on you, but six, six is the number of man. And six times God says to man, I am the Lord, your God. That's the reason for our holy recovery in all those verses, two, four, five, six, 21, and, and 30. I am the Lord, your God. I am the Lord, your God. That's the point of holy recovery. That even Israel's privacy and sexual immorality, even that, was to set them apart from their neighbors, to not be sexually immoral, but to be sexually moral. Sex is not the issue. It's the morality of it. And God says, even in the privacy of your own bedroom, you're to be different than they are. Why? Holy recovery. I'm recovering you to myself. I am reclaiming you to my holiness. 
I am redeeming you to be with me and like me because you are precious to me. Verse 18 of Deuteronomy 26, the Lord has declared today you to be his people, a treasured possession. As he's promised you that you shall keep all his commandments and that he will set you high above all nations which he has made for praise, fame, and honor, and you will be a consecrated people, holy, to the Lord your God as he has spoken. That is a holy recovery. And it's a holy recovery to an everlasting love, which is the point of all of this. Why declare homosexuality as impure, as wrong, as sin? Because God loves the person caught in the lifestyle. Why address adultery? Because God loves us too much to let us play those games on the side. Why address abortion? Because God loves his daughters too much to let them go through that. It's all for the love. Again, the world would say, how can you talk about love after some of the things you've read tonight? Leviticus 18, Romans 1. And again, I say it's because of love we must talk about these things. We have got to be clear on the word of God. And listen, final thing, and and we'll finish here. Christians are just people in holy recovery. It's all we are. We're not better. We're not more special. We just happen to be people in holy recovery. That is, we're recovered, we're redeemed, we're reclaimed by the Lord, which I think makes us the perfect people to bring the gospel message to this world. Because such were some of us. We among all people, having been redeemed, should understand what it's like to not be. Should therefore love enough to say, I remember being in that mindset. I came from that mess. And it's so much better. And here's the gospel. Speaking the truth in love, Paul says, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. And so, the calling, and it's, it's a very clear calling. We are called to uncover the sin, not the sinner. We uncover the sin. Homosexuality, and I'm using that as the example, I could use adultery, I could use any of these, is a sin. Let's uncover the sin. We're not trying to uncover or shame or judge the person. We're saying, this is the sin. And if you're caught in that sin, God wants to reclaim you as holy. God wants to make you his own. That's why he's coming after you. That's why you feel the guilt that you feel, why you don't want to hear me use these verses and talk this language. Because there's guilt there. God wants to remove that as well. Man, it's not about Christians becoming hateful. It's about us being bold in our love for a lost world. A love that wants to cover with the cleansing blood of Jesus. Romans 10 verse 13 says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then Paul says, well, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? We need more preachers, proclaimers of the gospel. And that's where we come in, as Paul said before, as though God were making an appeal through us. That's the mentality of evangelism. Brothers and sisters, 
our calling. God is making an appeal through us. And listen, our appeal is our holy recovery. The fact that I did sin in such a way that I was lost without Jesus, but I'm not now. That's the message. How God saved me is my message. Your message is how God saved you. How he reclaimed you to himself. We don't shy away of saying, yes, I blew it big time. I did that. I'm on that list. Such were some of us. But I was washed. And I was made clean. And the guilt is gone. And the sin is wiped away. And now I belong to him. I am in holy recovery. I want to leave you with a Spurgeon quote. Man, I've gone long tonight. But hey, I'm not, you know, we're, we're going to leave this till the new year. So it's okay. Charles Spurgeon sent this out to our staff and it ruffled some feathers and I'm glad it did. Spurgeon said, for us to hate those who are in error or to talk of them with contempt or to wish them ill or do them wrong is not according to the spirit of Christ. You cannot cast out Satan by Satan nor correct error by violence nor overcome hate by hate. The conquering weapon of the Christian is love. Do we love enough in our holy recovery to seek to recover others? 2 Corinthians 5.14 tells us the love of Christ controls us. It's funny, I used to, I used to shy away from that verse because being controlled, I didn't like the sound of that. No, 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 it's true. The love of Christ controls us. 1 Thessalonians 3.12, may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people. May our love abound. May the boldness of our love come out in our relationships as we share. May we be loving enough to speak the truth with the hope of covering. Peter said, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And by the way, that's our name in the New Testament. Saints, hagios in the Greek, meaning holy ones, a people in holy recovery. Father, we just pray that you will continue to lead and instruct to love boldly, to love, Lord, truthfully and honestly, to not shy away from the difficult conversations, to not be afraid to teach the truth or to speak the truth or to deal with the passages in your word. And Father, we recognize, and I declare right now, you are a God of love, and every word in your book comes from the heart of love. You have declared this, and I just say, Lord, I believe this. I receive this from you. That even in your declarations of what is sin and what is abomination and what is abhorrent, Lord, it's because you love so deeply. And I pray, Lord, that your love, Jesus, your love would control us that your love would control us in the church to love each other more and that your love would control us in the marketplace and in the world and among the non-believer to love more and to be fearless in our love for one another 
and for all people. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.